You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Today, I'm going to preach on, on the season and uh, preach on the reason for the season and, uh, and uh, look at a couple things this morning that I think will be it's good, it's good every once in a while to take a break from, the, from a series and, and focus on the time of year that you're in. It's not always easy, um, but I think it's helpful and, and it seemed appropriate this year. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 this morning is where we will read. And as you turn, let's go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of the scripture here this morning. Luke chapter 1 verse 67 is where we'll begin our reading. I just want to say again, thank you to our guests for being here yeah, it's good to look around the room and see uh, some folks that, uh, that I haven't met before or met a couple times before and you're back today. It's always a blessing to have you here and uh, we look forward to hoping that maybe God will, will speak to your heart. That's what we pray every week and that God will work in your life and that you'll let him. That you'll just say, God, you have my permission to work in me however you see fit. So Luke chapter 1 verse 67 is where we're going to read. This is... Different, a different kind of Christmas message probably um, in that we're going to be focusing today on a song of a man named Zechariah. And uh, he, he writes a song or he just busts out in song. I don't know exactly how it works. Is that the right proper word? Um, you know, we have some in our household that like musicals, you know, because they like, like if you have watch a movie or, or a, a play and they just break out in song every once in a while. We have some in our house that are like, no one just breaks out in song like that. It doesn't make sense. Well, Zechariah did, so, you know, it's biblical here. Okay. Uh, so just think about what he, he is singing or what he is saying here. And in verse 67, it says, And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. And hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. That we would, should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. To give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. This is an interesting passage, an interesting text, and one that may not 
be used very often in the Christmas season, but one that is certainly connected. Because right after this, the very next verse is, it came to pass in those days, there went out a decree uh, from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. So this is very connected to the birth of Jesus Christ. And we'll see how in just a moment. But I, I just want to focus on the lyrics to this prophecy, to this singing prophecy from Zacharias this morning. And just want to focus today on a truth. The title is this morning, When God Comes to Visit. When God Comes to Visit. See, things change when God comes to visit. Nothing is the same. If you've ever had someone come to your home that you wanted to be ready for, when they're coming to visit, boy, you're, you know, you things have got to be ready because this is an important visit. Well, listen, there's no more important visit than when God comes to visit. And he's here visiting us this morning. And I hope that you will have a heart that says, God, when you come to visit, I'll say yes to everything. Because this morning, this truth really could make a difference in our lives. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading. Father, we love you and we do thank you for your word. We thank you for providing it for us and, and how even in the pews in front of everyone here, they could reach out and grab a Bible and open it and read along with us. And it's just that readily available. I just want to say thank you for that. We pray that you bless the reading of your word and pray that you bless our time together. Work in our hearts today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, very few things say Christmas like Christmas music. Uh, yesterday, we, we were in Shields um, trying to survive and not get trampled, my wife and I. And there were people everywhere. But, you know, it was interesting because we walked in and there was music playing. And you say, well, that's not that different, except you could tell this was live music. They had a band, uh, the Shriners or somebody up along the, one of the top, the, the second floor along one of the the railings there, they were playing their instruments and playing Christmas music. And I'm telling you, it just did something to create the right atmosphere. You, but music plays such a huge role in this season. And sometimes it's great, and sometimes you can't get away from it even if you want to. Some people may even suffer from CMF, which is Christmas music fatigue. And maybe you're there right now. It's everywhere you go. It's in every store. It's on the radio. It's in commercials, it's in restaurants, and usually the songs that get stuck in your head are the ones that you want to forget. I was in Shields another time this holiday season, and I couldn't believe how many times one song can repeat the line, simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Over and over and over, and I was no longer having a wonderful Christmas time. That song might single-handedly turn me into Scrooge by Saturday. I'm not really Scrooge. I, I love this time of year. I, I enjoy this season. I enjoy time with family. But the most important piece of this season that often gets missed is the focus on the single most important event to that point in history, the birth of Jesus Christ. And it's obviously the reason for this season it's easy to forget because it's so commercialized and we're so busy and we're buying gifts and we're preparing for trips and, and we fail to truly remember why we celebrate. And our lack of focus on the reason for this season shows up in the music especially. I mean, most people define this season with songs like White Christmas and, 
and like that. And that's fine. I mean, that's up to you if you listen to those things. But the songs that should define the season are the songs we sang in church this morning. The focus on Jesus Christ. We sing carols here for most of the month of December, and I love singing them. We'll, we'll sing more tonight. We'll, we'll sing even more on Wednesday night in our, in our Christmas service is what we're going to do then. But we should enjoy them. It's my passion for singing the, the right focused, properly focused songs that led me to this message this morning. But I want to ask, do you, do you know where to find the first Christmas carols? Because they didn't originate in early America or in Europe. Bing Crosby didn't start them. The first carols actually go back about 2,000 years to the very first Christmas. Christmas songs are as old as Christmas itself. The birth of Christ was accompanied by, uh, by songs about the birth of Christ. And actually, when, when Dr. Luke here wrote this gospel that bears his name, he recorded four of what you could label original Christmas songs with, with lyrics that are still sung in many denominations today in Luke chapters 1 and 2. Over the years, many denominations connected to the Christian faith have placed significance on these four songs. You may have even heard them sung in the church that you came from, depending on your background. And the four songs that surround the birth of Christ are, there's one found in Luke chapter 1, verse 48 through 55. We're not going to read it this morning, and Lord willing, we're going to look at this one tonight. But that one's called Mary's Song. And very often they're known by their Latin names. It's Magnificat, which is the first name, or the one of the first words that she begins in 46. And Mary said, "My soul doth magnify the Lord. I'm going to magnify. I'm going to make the the name of the Lord great. I'll lift him up." It's taken from the word, and it's Magnificat, the song of Mary. That's that's the first song. The second song is the one that we read uh, here in Luke chapter one. It's Zechariah's song and. In Latin, it's known as, as Benedictus, which Benedictus in Latin means blessing. And, and at some point later on in the song, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, Benedictus. The third song is the angel song. Over in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, and that's a short song. It, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And that one is, is called Gloria in Excelsis, which Gloria, it's glory in the highest is what that means. And the final song is at the end of Luke chapter 2. Toward the end of Luke 2, it's Simeon's song. And if you'll remember, Simeon is a godly man. Who, and he's in the temple that the day that Joseph and Mary bring Jesus, baby Jesus, to come dedicate him before the Lord. And Simeon sees him and, and he picks baby Jesus up and he knows who he is. And in a note of prophecy, um, Simeon says, uh, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace. For mine eyes have seen this, thy salvation. And, and so the name of his song is often in Latin, uh, Nunc Dimittis, which means now let depart. Which the idea is now that I've seen Jesus, uh, I can leave in peace. Let thy servant depart. Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. And by the way, there's a good picture there. When you've, when you've experienced Jesus, uh, you can finally just have peace and you can be at rest. So these four songs, they all have... Uh, different, different themes and different notes and different focuses. And we could look at all four and it'd be interesting. But this morning I'd like to take a closer look here at Zachariah's song. They, there are some dynamic messages in these lyrics. But first let me just give you a little bit of, of, of background here. Zacharias is a 
minor New Testament character, but his son particularly plays an important role surrounding the birth of Jesus. And maybe you caught who his son is, but Zacharias's son. Zacharias was a priest in, in Jerusalem, and Luke 1 gives this account here, how the angel Gabriel comes to him and predicts that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a baby. The only problem is that Elizabeth is barren, and Zacharias, uh, up there in verse 18, he says, but I'm old. I'm old. My wife is barren. I'm not sure if you came to the right house, Gabriel. That's kind of his mentality. Um, but but the, Gabriel comes and says, your son is going to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. It's going to pre, he's going to prepare uh, the people to receive Jesus Christ. So does anybody know who his son is? It's John the Baptist. Zacharias' son was, it was going to be the, the John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, the one that would go out and, and prepare the people to hear uh, of Jesus' messages. But it's interesting because Zacharias, he didn't really believe it. He was like, are you sure? He basically says, my wife is barren and I'm old. I'm not sure. I mean, if an angel came to you and was talking to you, I don't think I'd have a tough time believing what he's telling me. He says, are you sure? And because he didn't believe the angel, the, the Bible says that the Lord smote him and that he couldn't speak for the entire duration of the pregnancy. He had no words. He couldn't get any words out. Well, uh, you know, you say, so for nine months, then, you know, the husband never talked. I'll let you wives decide what you think about that. You say, well, my husband never talks anyway. Well, but Zacharias didn't have a choice. For nine months, he just had to listen. I'm not going to go there. Okay, so... Zacharias, for nine months, couldn't speak, but when that baby was born, that little brand new infant baby named John, I don't know if he called him John the Baptist right away, but as a Baptist, I like to think he did. I like to think it was on his birth certificate, but maybe not. John was finally born, and, and Zacharias' speech was restored, and in the moment that he picked up that baby, he sang a song. I bet nine months of just thinking about regretting not believing the angel and anticipating what your son was going to be. He's, your, my son gets to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. I don't know if he wrote these lyrics out or he just had them in his head. But when he can finally speak again, he prophesies. And he, and he says this, these lyrics to this song that are recorded here. And Now, here's another thought. Zacharias, was a, he was a priest who no doubt was very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And so this song is full of Old Testament truth. It sounds like a combination of, of the prophets and the Psalms together, particularly with regard to their waiting for the Messiah to come. You catch that in, in his song here, in what he says, he's waiting, they've been waiting for so long for the Messiah. They've been waiting so long for Jesus to come. And now as Zacharias, as he sings this song, the, the birth of the Messiah is just a few months away and he knows it. And this song truly gives us a glimpse into what the average Jew would have been thinking in those days. You can tell that the coming of the Messiah, that it meant a lot to these people. You can tell what the coming of Christ meant. They'd waited so long. And Zacharias uses one word 
twice at the beginning and at the end of the prophecy that I want to look at and focus on this morning because I really believe it's, it's the focus of the, of the lyrics. It's the focus of his thought. Look at verse 68. So he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Look down at verse 78. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. See, the word visited means that someone sees another person in need and distress and they visit to help them. Kind of like if you've ever, this has happened to me before, if you've ever been driving and, and, and a vehicle gets in an accident, you see a vehicle get in an accident and you stop, uh, pull your car over, hopefully you do this, you pull your car over and you go to the car to check on the person and see. That's the idea of the word visit here. See, when we think of the word visit, we might think, oh yeah, they're going to come over and visit for a little bit. Well, that kind of visiting is great, it's fine, that's not this kind of visiting. This visit means that God looked down and for all this time that the Jews have been in bondage and the Jews haven't heard from God, that they've been waiting for the Messiah to come, God looks down and he sees their distress and he sees their need and he doesn't leave them in their condition, he comes to visit them. He wants to come and help them. He's, he's not just looking to, to come hang out. He's coming to meet a need. That's the idea. He didn't just come to see them. This is not just a card. It's not just a text. It's not even just a phone call. It's coming and knocking on somebody's door. Because you know they need some help. It means you're so moved by the misery. You personally get involved in their lives. That's the central point, I believe, of Zacharias' song. And at long last is what he's saying. At long last, God has visited his people. At long last, the God of heaven is finally coming here. Long last, God has arrived. At long last, God has kept his promise. At long last, he's come to earth. And we probably have no idea how to relate to the relief that Zacharias felt. I mean, they'd waited, think about it, they'd waited thousands of years for this promise to come. And if you've ever waited for something that you anticipated, it seems like you just can't wait. I remember as a kid, Christmas when I was a kid, I mean, if it was a week away, it might as well be six months away. Waiting for Christmas just took forever and ever, and I, I couldn't, I just couldn't wait. It, it looked, seemed like it took so long, but, but imagine waiting thousands of years for your deliverer. They thought God had forgotten about them. If you, think, if you look at your timeline of Old Testament to New Testament history, there were 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament. That means that Malachi was the last prophet. So for 400 years, they had heard no messages from the Lord. It, it, it had been thousands of years um, since the first time they'd heard this promise. I mean, they'd been carried away captive. They came back. Now the Romans were ruling them. They had 400 years of silence. No wonder they thought God had forgotten them. And no wonder when the, when the angel finally comes that Zacharias starts singing, God is on his way. The Messiah is coming. The wait would soon be over. God is going to visit his people. Here's the main idea at long last. 
God has visited his people again. And before you think that's not a big deal, Zacharias, is, he points out some great truths that result from God visiting his people. And I'm not going to go through these, spend a lot of time on these, but, but I'm telling you, there are some good points here. See, remember, God comes because of the misery and the despair and the need. And when God comes to visit first, it means you can be saved. When God comes to visit, it means you can be saved. Christ's coming meant salvation. Look at verse 68. And he and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us. There's salvation right there. Look at verse 69. Sorry, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. That's salvation. Verse 69, hath raised up a horn of salvation. A horn is a symbol of victory. You blow a horn when there's victory. Well, the idea is that salvation is finally here. We can blow the horn of victory. See, notice, Zacharias' focus isn't even on John. It's on Jesus. And he's not even thinking about his son right here. He's thinking about salvation. Look at verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies. Look at verse 74. That he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Look at verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation unto his people. Listen, Zacharias isn't just referring to physical salvation. He's talking about redemption. He's talking about remission of sins. And prophetically, he's filled with the Spirit. He's singing about things that Jesus was going to make possible. And I don't even imagine that, that Zacharias really understood what he was singing about. He was just prophesying. He, he's singing about being delivered from sins. Christ, listen, Christ coming to earth made it possible for sinners to be saved. And I've said this a lot lately, but it's true. Your biggest problem is sin. It's not your circumstances, and it's not a person, it's not your broken down car. I mean, those are problems, but your biggest problem. And my biggest problem is my sin. And when Jesus Christ was born, he came into the world, as we heard this morning, to save sinners. To die on a cross for sins. His coming makes salvation available, and his coming means no more sin, and no more death, and no more fear, and no more dreading eternity, because Jesus Christ was born to die for sins. He came, and his visiting his people makes salvation possible. When God comes to visit, it means salvation is available to you. God is visiting this morning. And we have some visitors here. We have guests, and I'm so thankful for him. But you know the most important guest that's with us, is his name is, is God. And really, we're his guests because it's his house. But he's here. The Holy Spirit right now is visiting because there's a room full of people with needs today. There's a room full of people that have come and you're broken and you're, and you're weary and you're burdened down and, and you don't see how it's going to end up well and you're not even sure what the answers will be but you're here and you, you're just trying to find out what God wants to do. I'm telling you, God's presence is here. The Holy Spirit is here and he's visiting people in need and you know your need and God knows your need and nobody else may know what you're dealing with but I'm telling you, when God comes to visit... He makes salvation possible, and he makes it possible for you this morning. Amen. The fact that God has visited means salvation is available. And the question this morning, 
is will you receive it? When God comes to visit, it also means, too, you can trust his word. See, Zacharias, he couldn't get past the fact that God had at long last done what he said he was going to do. He had kept his promise that he would visit. And look what he says about the promise of the coming Messiah. Look at verse 70. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. The idea you know, here is that this promise was made a long time ago. The idea is that this promise has been around for a long time. The prophets have been saying that this was going to happen. It's been around for a long time. And at long last, here it comes. Verse 72. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers. The Jews of the previous generations. They had the same promises. And they looked for the same things. But Zacharias got to be there. He was going to see it happen. Verse 73. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. See, God had made this oath or a vow to Abraham and that this isn't just a pinky promise this is a serious vow God made an oath he told Abraham I'm coming I've got these promises and the prophets have talked about them for thousands of years and the point is obvious Zacharias is saying that God is doing what he promised he keeps his word His coming had been predicted for thousands of years. And by the way, I I just doing a little research this week. The details predicted by the prophets and fulfilled by Christ were were miraculous. Absolutely miracles. I mean, uh, Isaiah had said in chapter 7 that he said he'd be born of a virgin and he was. Malachi chapter 5 said he'd be born in Bethlehem. Guess where he was born? Bethlehem. Hosea 11 predicted that Joseph and Mary would flee to Egypt, and they did. Isaiah chapter 11 stated that he would be a Nazarene, and he was. Malachi 3 and 4 and Isaiah 9 and 40 prophesied that Zechariah's son, John, would be the forerunner of Christ, a voice preparing Israel for his coming. Can you imagine if it was your son, and your son was talked about in prophecies hundreds of years before? One professor, his name's Peter Stoner of Westmont College, he put numbers to the probabilities that Christ could accurately fulfill just eight. He just listed eight of the Old Testament prophecies about Christ's coming. And he said for one man to fulfill just eight of the Old Testament prophecies would be the probability of one in ten to the 17th power. So that's ten with 17 zeros. Say, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. Well, if you had that, mu- that much money in your bank account, you, you would mean, it would mean something to you. <laughs> Instead, the rest of us just have a bunch of zeros in our bank account. No 10 at the beginning. So 10 to the 17th power. And so he was trying to give an illustration. Peter Stoner was trying to give an illustration of what that looks like. And he said, if you were to take that many silver dollars, 10 to the 17th power, and you would dump them in Texas... It would, it would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. So let's just say, though, that on one of those silver dollars, you put a special mark on it. This is the special one. And you hit it somewhere in that sea of silver dollars that covers the state of Texas in two, in two feet of silver dollars. And then you blindfolded somebody 
and you told them to walk and start walking across the sea of silver dollars two feet deep, the size of Texas, and said, just stop when you feel like you're in the right spot and reach down and pick it up. And, it, and, you, and if you pick up their silver dollar, the one out of that many with the mark on it, then that's the probability that Jesus Christ could have fulfilled just eight of the Old Testament prophecies. But there's way more than eight Old Testament prophecies. So it's way, way more unlikely than two feet of silver dollars in the state of Texas that Jesus Christ could come unless it was a miracle. Professor Stoner concluded, any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. Don't forget the point. If God's word was right about Jesus, then you can trust God's word. When God comes to visit, it's like him saying, you can trust what, I'm, what I've said. What I've said is true. It, what God says he'll do always comes to pass. You can believe it. So I'm just telling you this morning, believe it. If it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, there's no reason to wring your hands and saying, but is God's word true? Does, does what he say, say, say does, does it come to pass? I'm telling you, it comes to pass. You can trust it. And if God has said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee, there's no reason to leave, wring your hands and say, but will he or won't he? Because he won't leave you or forsake you. If he says it, it comes to pass. Always, every time. And there's no reason to wring your hands if, if you've sinned and, and you know that you're guilty before God. But, but you know that his word says, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't need to wring your hands and wonder if it's true. God's word is always true and it always comes to pass every single time. I'm just telling you, you can trust God's word this morning. If his word says it and you obey it, I'm telling you, it will always happen. If it says my grace is sufficient for your needs, you don't have to wonder. When God comes to visit, it proves his word and it means you can trust it. Number three, when God comes to visit, it means you can be changed. See, we all want improvement. We all want to be better than what we are. The bad news is true change can't take place without God's help. And sure, we can adjust and we can modify ourselves and we can make improvements and self-improvements and we can get self-help books, but God enables transformation. Look at verses 74 and 75. He says that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. You know, it's incredible to think about this. Zacharias says that God would transform them from sinners filled with fear to servants filled with holiness and righteousness. God's supernatural transforming power, listen, it can take you from what you are right now to something that you never thought you could be. And right now we may have people in this room and you've come in today and right now all you see is the sin and all you see is the failure all you see is the guilt and the shame and all the mistakes of your past. And all you see is your limitations. But I'm just telling you, Romans 12, 2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that word transformed is the same word from which we get metamorphosis, like a butterfly. See, God doesn't just improve us. He transforms us. 
Before salvation, the best that we could do is just modify the material that was already there. But salvation is a new birth, which means that God transforms us from what we were to something brand new. I almost said brand spanking new because it would have just for emphasis. You may think change will never come. But it's possible because God has come to visit. He came so you could have victory over your sin. That sin that plagues you and that nobody else even knows about that you just can't get away from. God came to transform you and take you out of that life. He came so you can live a life with purpose. I mean, to, filled with fear or a life filled with holiness and righteousness. I mean, who among us could ever make ourselves holy and righteous? Nobody. But God in his transforming work can take you from a sinner to holy and righteous. It's incredible. He came so you could serve him. And knowing how much of a sinner I am, I mean, how could he ever want to use me? But he transforms us. He came so we who are lost in sin could be transformed. And that we could, those of us who lived in fear and of death might be free of fear forever. No, I mean, I, that I'll die no more. Listen, though, if his coming made change possible, why do so many of God's people live the way they always have? Let's not accept God's grace in vain, folks. See, when we speak the way that we used to or act the way we used to or, or rage the way we used to or have the same spirit or resort to our old habits of an old life, we are making God's change of none effect. We're saying, yes, I know that you can change me, but I'm going to go on living the way that I want. No, God has enabled transformational change for your life. And I'm just asking, are you taking advantage of it by living a life that pleases him? When God comes to visit, it means you can be changed. But when God comes to visit, number four, it also means you can be used. You can be used. See, Zacharias takes a few moments to speak directly to his infant son that he's holding. He's holding this baby in his arms and, and he says these things. Look at verse 76. And thou, so, so just, just to clarify, the first part of the verses, the first few verses, he's saying, uh, here's what Jesus changes in all of our lives. Here's what Jesus changes for Israel. Here's what, here's what his coming means. And then he stops and he looks down at his baby and he says, oh, and you, boy. And thou, he says, look at verse 76. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. He says, you boy, you're going to be called the prophet of the highest. You get to go before Jesus and you get to prepare his way. In verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. He says, you boy. I mean, I used to talk real, real harsh with my, with my kids. And, you know, just like I'm the man. And really, if they just start crying, I'd be like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. But, you know, <laughs> you boy. You're going to go tell people about the remission of sins. That's available through the Messiah. I used to have those conversations with my kids when they were little. I'm like, someday you're going you're gonna to take care of your dad when I can't take care of myself. <laughs> well, this is way bigger than that. He says, son, you're going to go and you're going to prepare the way of the Lord. You're going to tell his people he's coming. 
And not only that, you're going to tell them about salvation. And you're going to tell them about the remission of sins because you're the prophet of the highest. Can you imagine if it was your son and he was prophesied about and you get to tell him what he gets to do someday? I'm telling you, that just gets me excited to think about what my kids might do someday and what your kids might do someday. And here's this, this boy and this new baby boy and infant and God's going to use him in eternally incredible ways. And we might think, well, but yeah, but that's John the Baptist. You know, uh, it's different for us. God doesn't in, intend to use me like that. Well, I mean, it's true that John the Baptist was called the prophet of the highest. But don't you ever think that God doesn't view you more highly than you view yourself. See, God's children are called lots of good names too. God's children, we're called Christ's brethren. We're called beloved. We're called blessed. I just wrote some of these down. We're called children of the highest. We're called chosen vessels and fellow heirs. We're called Christ's friends. We're called heirs of salvation. We're called a holy nation. We're called a holy priesthood. I read my Bible this morning in Revelation. We're called kings and priests. We're called the ransomed. We're called the redeemed. We're called a royal priesthood. So don't think that God only had big plans for John the Baptist. He was a prophet. Listen, but if you're saved, God has big plans for you too. John was told he'd prepare people for Christ and tell others how to be saved. But, well, but that's John the Baptist. But wait, we're called to be his witnesses. Which is, sounds a lot like somebody preparing others for Christ. We're, we're told to go and teach and preach the gospel of Christ. And that sounds a lot like someone tasked with telling others how to be saved. So don't think that John the Baptist had a job you and I could never do. Because you're part of a local church with the highest calling of any institution on earth. We've been called to tell people about Jesus, to prepare his way. We've been called to tell people about salvation. Listen, don't assume God has small plans for your life. He's just as interested in using you as he was John the Baptist. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. You may never have your name written as a Christian hero of the faith. But God has a big plan for you. Stop thinking that you're not part of his plans. He has a plan and, he, and will for each of us to be used in ways we never thought we could be. And when God comes to visit, he makes it possible for us to be used. And then finally, when God comes to visit, it means you can live life free from bondage. You can live free from bondage. You don't have to stay bound. Look at verse 79. He says, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Listen, when God came, Israel was in darkness. Israel had no direction. They had no peace. They were living in fear. But when Christ came, he shed light on their lives. And he made things that were confusing clear. Listen, when Christ comes, he frees us from the fear of death. I mean, death is scary. It's our greatest fear. It's unknown. But Christ has already been there. He died. And he rose. Which means we don't have to be afraid. And we can trust that he'll take care of us even in that darkest moment. Listen, when Christ comes, he provides a life of peace and security. Through his word, he gives us a clear path of peace. 
God isn't, listen, God's not just, I just want you to notice this. God's not just interested in what he gets from you. Yes, he had a plan for John the Baptist, but think about all that he was offering to people. I mean, a lot of people think, well, when God comes, he just uses people to accomplish his purposes. That couldn't be further from the truth. See, God isn't just interested in what he can get from you. He's interested in what he can do for you. He's interested in giving you things you never thought you could have. He wants you to have guidance and he wants you to have clarity. He wants you to have peace. He wants you to, have, to be free from the sins that bind you. He wants you to be free from the darkness. He wants you to be free from the bondage of a life lived without him. And if you've come today with arms crossed and you're thinking, no, I'm not giving God anything. He just wants from me. No, you've misunderstood. See, Jesus didn't come to get something. He came offering everything. Jeremiah 29, he's for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. God has a thought and a plan for your life and he wants you to live it and he was born to die on a cross so he could offer all of these things. The fact that he came means you can be saved and you can trust his word and you can be changed and you can be used and you can be freed from the bondage that you're in. Listen, that sounds like a God who wants to give more than a God that wants to take. Too many of us are more concerned with what we might have to give up. And we lose sight of all that there is to be gained. I, was, I read a, a story, saw an art news headline a, a few weeks ago. And in the UK, United Kingdom, there was a massive snowstorm. And so the story was about this. And I watched a video of it too. Don't pull it up right now. Wait till later. But the snow just all came down in bunches. I'm just dumped in there were drifts and and just feet of snow so there was a shepherd who came out the next morning and about half of his flock had made their way back to the house but you know helpless sheep the other half he had no idea where they were so he he goes and starts looking around his property trying to find the sheep that he he couldn't see and he'd come to find out that they were underneath the snow it started snowing, it started piling up, and they didn't know what to do, so they just let the snow build up on top of them, and they're under the snow. So literally, there's this video of this guy, and he's on his hands and knees, and he's dug a tunnel. And the tunnel's about this big, it looks. And at the end of the tunnel, just a few feet in, there's this sheep head. <laughs> and he's just staring at the shepherd. I'm not making it up, it's on the internet. So, take that to the bank. There's a sheep head upside, uh, inside the tunnel there. And, he's in, and the, the way is clear. The path is clear. And there's on top of the sheep, there's literally like three feet of snow on top of it. And he's like, come on, come on, come on, come out. You know, he's trying to reach in. And the sheep's just staring at him. <laughs> it is pretty funny. <laughs> now that I'm acting it out, it's pretty funny. So, and you know, it's interesting to think about that sheep as a picture of our lives. You see, we're in a mess. We're in danger. We're in need. And we don't even know probably the kind of mess that our lives are in. 
But when the good shepherd comes to visit, he's not just coming by to say hi. See, he sees the need and he knows the danger and he has even given us a path to escape it. But we're back there inside the snow saying, I'm just not sure this is a good idea. I'm trying to be coaxed out from where we are. And there's a clear path. And the shepherd on the other side who just wants us to take, to take us to warmth and safety. It's interesting that sheep inside the tunnel had to be coaxed out. And yet, see, that's a picture. The good shepherd has come to visit this morning. And he sees the need you're in. And he sees the mess that you're in. And he's even provided a way of escape. And he's saying, come on. Come on, you dumb sheep. But we're like sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We don't even know how bad we're in. The mess. We don't even know the danger. And yet, he has made a way to escape. And he just wants to bring us out. He stopped the visit, not to say hi, not to drink a cup of coffee, but to rescue you from your needs. And the fact that that shepherd dug the tunnel, it made it possible for that sheep to be saved. It made it possible for that, she that sheep to be changed. You know, no longer dying, but living. It made that possible for that sheep to continue being used for its purpose. And it made it possible for that sheep to be freed from the bondage it was in. You know the only reason a sheep wouldn't be freed and wouldn't be changed and wouldn't be saved and wouldn't be used after a situation like that is if the sheep decides just to stay right where it is. And I'm just telling you this morning, the only thing holding you back from getting to enjoy the benefits that take place when God comes to visit is if you refuse to take the step this morning. He has come to change your life, to save you, to use you, to free you from bondage. And you can believe his word. You can trust it. So I'm just saying, why don't you just take the step? Because the fact that God came to visit means all of those things are available to you and I. This depends on if you're willing to humble yourself before the shepherd and say, that's the life I want. What a message from one song. So this season, while the Christmas music plays, don't miss the fact that the greatest message of the Christmas songs is that God came to visit. Not just to give us a nostalgic story, but because he saw us in our misery and need. And he said, I want to bless them. I want to free them. I want to give them salvation. I want to give them security. I, I want to transform them so they can be used for something great. I want to free them from the sin and the darkness and bondage they're in. Christian, God has visited you this morning. And he's doing it for your benefit. But you may be up inside that snowdrift, think, well, I like it in here. No, it's way better with the shepherd. Why don't you take a step, humble yourself and say, whatever the application is this morning, you know, I'm better with the shepherd than I am in my mess. To the lost this morning, God has visited you so you could receive eternal benefits. I'm talking about salvation. And you know what? Right now he's knocking. And he's asking you if he can come in. Not so he can take, 
but so he can give all of these great blessings. So I'm asking you this morning, will you let him in? Listen, when God comes to visit, everything changes. And it can change for you today. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.